uh, continue this uh, series in Paul's letter to Titus, the pastor of uh, the church in Crete. Uh, this morning we will look at the first ten verses of uh, Titus 2. Uh, and as you are aware by now, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, so if you are able to do that, let me ask that you do that now. Uh, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, for your help. We read in this passage uh, words that you inspired, uh, words that are your words, words that you wrote. And if we are honest, words we'd rather not hear. And so, Father, we pray for the grace uh, and the humility to hear them uh, and for your work by these words, by your spirit in our lives to conform us to them all the more. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, if you've been around uh, Grace Covenant any length of time, you've heard us. Uh, from time to time, use the phrase, the whole gospel for the whole person, through the whole city, to the whole world. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, the last two we'll leave alone for another day. Um, what do we mean by the whole gospel? Well, we mean um, the, the, the gospel as given to us in God's Word. Um, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, not a partial gospel, and not in the context of Titus, if you remember uh, the last uh, passage, not a Jesus plus gospel, but a Jesus alone gospel. Uh, the false teachers in this day are teaching a Jesus plus gospel. We mean the whole gospel as it is uh, given to us in God's Word. But we also mean that that gospel is for the whole person. It's not just, as we so frequently say, not, it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just a life insurance policy. But it actually has something to say to us as men, as women, as children, as, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as teachers and students, as employers and employees, as sports fans, as neighbors, as... Pick something. I'm, I've left out thousands. You can do the rest. The scripture has something to say to us in every aspect, every part of our lives. And in this passage, 
Paul instructs Titus to teach just that to the members of the churches there on the island of Crete. Our actions, our behaviors should grow out of God's word. It should grow out of the whole gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul, first of all, instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now pay attention to that. Notice he doesn't tell Titus, teach sound doctrine. He's going to do that. And he's going to have to do that. But there's more to it than that. The instruction isn't just teach sound doctrine, but teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach a life that reflects a doctrine that is right and and biblically grounded. It almost sounds a little bit like the Great Commission. Baptizing, teaching them, not teaching whatever Christ has commanded, but teaching them to obey whatsoever Christ has commanded. The two go hand in hand. Paul's instructing, instructing Titus to teach not just sound doctrine, but the life, the, the, the ethics, the morality, the, the way of living that grows out of that sound doctrine. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we pointed out that in our world, doctrine is a bad word. Um, you don't use it. We don't want, I don't want doctrine. I just want Jesus. I don't need doctrine. I just need the Bible. The word doctrine just means teaching. So if you believe the Bible teaches anything at all, you believe in doctrine. So there's, there's no reason to shy away from that word. It's not a, a dangerous word in any way, shape, or form. And this isn't an, arguments to get, an argument against teaching doctrine. If you're going to teach a life that reflects sound doctrine, you probably have to teach the sound doctrine first that goes along with it. But what is sound doctrine? What does that word even mean? How do I know if, if my doctrine is sound? The word there actually gives us the word hygiene. Now, you and I use hygiene to mean clean. Uh, that's probably not exactly right. It's more healthy or fit or put together properly, put together the way it's supposed to be. So doctrine that is sound, doctrine that, that is hygienic, is doctrine that's actually doing what it's supposed to do. All the parts are, are put together properly and everything's functioning the way it should. Sort of like the way the human body operates. We have all these parts and if one of them is missing, it, it affects the rest of your body. You can live without one kidney, but it, it'll matter. It'll affect you. So if you have your doctrinal system and there are parts that are diseased or parts that are missing. Your system's not going to work together properly. It's not going to be sound. It's not going to be hygienic. And so Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, maybe you know this. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've even at some point in your past said this. But in our PCA tribe, we are frequently accused of being so loving of doctrine that we really kind of don't care how it plays out in our lives. That we really don't, 
We just want to fill our heads with knowledge and it doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't lead us to loving other people. Our, our, our denominational tribe gets charged with that rather frequently. The man who can recite the Westminster Confession of Faith, the man who can answer not the shorter, but the larger catechism, uh, you know, sitting there in his house, his, his kids running roughshod all over the place, uh, destroying everything, listening to him no better than the dog does, barking at his wife, shouting, yelling commands and instructions at her. Just because he can recite the confession doesn't make him godly. Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Godly living should reflect the sound doctrine that we have. It's not enough to say, well, I know the confession and I can recite it. I can, I can answer the shorter catechism questions. I can answer the larger catechism questions. I challenge you. I've never taken the challenge either. But, but if you're not living out that doctrine, if you're not living out that theology... There's an aim, in other words, to our theology, to our sound doctrine. And that aim is godly living. That aim is our sanctification. That aim is our spiritual growth. So it's with that background in verse 1 that Paul then launches into various groups of people within the church. Different groups of people within the body. And he says, essentially, this is what, uh, this is how a life that accords with sound doctrine looks for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, and for you, Titus, and for bond servants. How can you recognize um, what accords with sound doctrine in the life of other people? Surely, we can be honest enough to recognize that the struggles and temptations of younger men is not the same, they're not the same list that older women struggle with. The needs, the particular sort of sanctification issues that generally go with older men are really not the same sanctification needs or issues that younger women are facing at that moment. There are always exceptions to the rule. But notice he begins with older men. Older men are to be sober-minded or, or temperate, uh, dignified, and self-controlled. Now, at some level, you, you should be able to hear, that, sure just, that almost just sounds like the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, that almost just sounds like, well, there's the word, self-controlled. That almost just sounds like someone who's been walking with Christ for many years. They, they've managed some amount of self-control. They're, they're sober-minded. They're, they're careful and, and clear-headed in their thinking. They don't react harshly and rashly, but they're slow and a little slower and more methodical and biblically grounded in their thinking. They're quicker to say, well, hold on time out before I react, before I give an answer. What does Scripture say? They're a little more sober-minded. They're dignified. Now, when I read that word, I, I immediately an image is in my head. And it's, it's this old curmudgeonly kind of guy with his glasses sitting way down on his nose. With his, his nose kind of stuck in the air and he kind of looks down his face at you. And he has a little bit of a British accent. Because he, he's just 
this, this rarefied, sort of uppity, dignified kind of a person. That, that's not exactly what the word means here. That's not exactly what Paul means. But it's, there's a, a seriousness to the godly, older Christian man. A, a respectability. Uh, someone that you uh, look up to and would go to to ask questions and to, to get answers and to find out the, the difficult uh, truths of life, perhaps, or as you're wrestling with issues. It's the kind of person you would go to and say, now that person's seriously minded enough, biblically thinking enough, dignified enough that, that I can go to them and seek their help. And they're self-controlled. There's that term again. It came up uh, a couple of times uh, two weeks ago as we looked at the, the, the qualifications for the office of elder. We said it was the, um, like in the Lord of the Rings, it's the, the one ring to rule them all. It's the one qualification, the one characteristic to rule all the others. And notice, it sounds like an elder. In many ways, you read that list and think, well, I mean, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, that sure sounds like the qualifications for an elder. But Paul's not limiting his argument here to an elder. It's an older man. It's a slightly different term, same root, but with a different ending. It, it broadens the scope of his aim. Maybe you're thinking... Well, good news. Uh, I'm not an older man. One commentary actually called them the gray beards. And, and several folks in the room just kind of went, uh-oh. Or can I even grow a beard? I, I've noticed, um, I'm not growing one right now really, but I've, there's, there's gray in mine. And I'm, I'm confident I'm not that old. But it... Took you long enough. But in Paul's day, older men would pretty much have been in their 30s, certainly their 40s. And all of a sudden, half the, the rest of the room just went, oh, there I go. And so Paul addresses older men. And notice that at the end of verse 2, he adds, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Does that sound like a, a group of three you've heard before? You're thinking, wait, faith, love, uh, there's, there's, hope should be next, right? I mean, faith, hope, and love, is the, those are the three that go together. Well, isn't that steadfastness? It's essentially the same thing. He should be, be sound in the faith in His love and in His hope, in His steadfastness. In other words, with regard to His relationship to God, to other people, and to the cares of this world, sound in the faith, in His love for others, and in His hope, in His steadfastness, enduring the, the trials of life that come along with living in a fallen, broken world. Older men should be modeling uh, reliance on God and His Word for their lives. And then Paul 
uh, turns his attention in verse 3 to older women. Uh, And notice uh, what he says to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. The word there actually, um, it, it would make you think of a priestess if we had such a thing. Someone who's uh, dignified and reverent as those serving in the temple, as those serving in the house of God. They conduct themselves like that's where they are serving, like that's where they are. They're not enslaved to much wine. It's over and over again, the, the pattern for Christian maturity is... I'm not controlled by substances. I control them. I'm not controlled by by substances. I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, if you drink wine, that's fine, but not to be consumed by it, not to be controlled by it, not to be subject to the control of that substance. The, the, The model of sanctification is always... I have my wits about me. I'm controlled by the Spirit and not by the things of this world. And then there's another qualification. I want to be careful. Since I'm not an older woman, uh, I don't want to throw women under the bus completely. But I think we're okay. I think I'm on safe ground. If we recognize the fact that Sins of the tongue come more easily to women than to men. See, we don't want to say anything at all if we can help it. So we're not likely, that's not likely to be our struggle. And as Proverbs says, with many words, there is much sin. Paul warns older women against being slanderers. Gossips, people who talk about other people. Um, You know how it works. You're sitting around having tea with a group of ladies and eventually the conversation turns to other people. The older woman says, I'm not sure this is appropriate talk. We need to be careful that, that this isn't slander, that this isn't gossip, that we're not sinning against that person, that we're not dragging their character through the mud behind their back. I'm Reminded of Randy Travis? As long as old men sit and talk about the weather? As long as old women sit and talk about old men? There's a warning for older women to guard against conversations that turn towards slander, towards backbiting, towards gossip, towards sins of the tongue. But notice he follows it up with a better use for your mouth than slander. Verse, uh, the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4. Instead of using your tongue for slander, and instead of using your tongue for backbiting, instead of using your tongue for gossip, instead, teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands, etc., etc. Rather than being a malicious gossip, Rather than tearing down the people that aren't in the room, use your mouth to build up the people that are. That's the trade-off. That's the, that's the switch. That's the difference in the mindset. And notice this. Titus teaches, 
the older men. Titus teaches the older women. Titus teaches the younger men. It's the older women who teach the younger women. Did you notice that? It's, it's let these older women not be slanderers. Instead, they should teach what is good and so train younger women. This, by the way, has significant influence on what women's ministry looks like at Grace Covenant. It's a predominantly word ministry of women teaching and training and encouraging other women. You know, it's kind of tempting, I know, I guess, when, when we reach a certain age and, and we retire from work, it's tempting, I would imagine, at least I've seen it in the past, to think, well, I can retire from church work too. I can retire from stuff in the church because I'm retired from work work. Paul says, older women, use your gifts, use your tongues to teach and to train younger women. Ladies, if you're looking for... You should be looking for opportunities to, to teach and to train younger women. You should be around them in, in settings where you get to interact with them and hear their struggles as, as wives, as parents, and be there to encourage and meet with them and to train them and to teach them. It's far better, quite honestly, for an older woman, woman to do that for than for, say, a bachelor pastor to come along young women and tell them how they should be respecting their husbands. And right, young ladies would hear it far differently from an older woman than they would from a bachelor pastor coming along trying to, sounding like he's wagging his finger in your face. And then Paul turns his attention to younger women. He doesn't go old men, old women, young men, young women. It's he follows a different pattern. It makes, it makes sense because he transitions from older women who are now teaching and training the younger women. Well, what, is he, what are they teaching and training them to do? Well, verses 4 and 5. To love their husbands and children and then later submissive to their own husbands. The, the first responsibility for young women is in the home. Their first and primary responsibility is to love their husbands, to love their children, and submit to their own husbands. Talk about offensive language. Go say that out there in the world. We don't have time to unpack it all. We really could spend an entire sermon on each one of these people, and maybe one of these days we will. Ladies, if you're worried about this word submit, notice two things. Number one, women don't submit to men. Women generally don't submit to men generally. That's not in the Bible. We submit to church leaders, regardless of whether you're men or women. And wives submit to their own husbands, not somebody else's husband, but to their own husband. So notice, first of all, it's not... We oppress women and they're, see they're worse than men and they're not as good as we are. Write down Luke 2.51. Because in Luke 2.51, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Son of God, same word, was submissive to His parents. Jesus submitted to Mary and Joseph. 
Now, the rest of the Bible always tells children to obey their parents, not submit. It's not voluntary. You see, when you get married, you're saying to yourself and you're saying to the world around you and to your spouse, I'm voluntarily placing my will, my desires under alongside yours. We're making them one. Jesus, because he is infinitely greater than Mary and Joseph, it was voluntary. Children obey their parents, not for Jesus. He actually is greater than they are. And yet he, he was submissive to them. It's the exact same word is used there in describing Jesus' relationship to Joseph and to Mary. The godly young woman is submissive to her husband and, and loves her family, loves her husband, loves her children. And that's the, the aim, her primary focus is at home. And then there's a, a secondary focus uh, that goes along with that. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind. Those words have a little more to do with outsiders, more with hospitality, more with opening your home to welcome other people into it, to to care for the hurting and, and the lost, to be kind and loving and gracious and generous to those outside. And then fourth, Paul addresses Titus specifically. He says, younger men first, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, ladies, I know what you're thinking. That list I just got, and these young men get self-controlled. I mean, can we balance them out a little bit? Loves husband, submissive to husband, loves children, works at home, kind, pure. That list is way too long. And these young men, all they get is self-control. Let me make two observations. Number one, again, it's the ring that rules them all. I mean, technically, if they are self-controlled, everything else follows right along with that. But two... How often do we give young men a pass? Oh, I mean, he's just he's just sowing, sowing his wild oats. I mean, I, I get it. Boys will be boys and all that, you know. We give young men a pass as though there's no hope. Well, they're teenagers. I mean, they're, they're college students. We can't expect too much of them. We can't expect them to be, to be well-behaved. We can't expect them to be self-controlled. I mean... They're college students. They're going to be wild. I get it. And one day they'll grow up. That's not what Paul says. Paul says we should actually expect our young men to have self-control. To be able to control their passions and their appetites. Not to be running around all wild and, and crazy. And excuse it like, well, boys will be boys. He's just, you know, he's just sowing his wild oats. He'll grow up one day. He'll grow out. It's just a phase. We excuse it any number of ways. And, and Paul's scripture expects by the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, that young men, that it's not only possible for them to, to exercise self-control, but it's actually expected among believers. Parents, you should be teaching your children self-control. That starts 
when they're two months old, not when they're 20. It starts from the very beginning. Don't wait until they're 20 to start teaching self-control. And then Paul turns his attention in verses 7 and 8 to Titus. And so it probably appears that Titus is one of the young men, though though not as young as, as Timothy apparently. Uh, but he's to be a model of good works. Uh, teaching uh, what is uh, what has integrity and, and dignity, um, all of those sorts of things, which contradicts, I mean, it's contrary to the, to the to the errorists in the previous passage, right? The people in the previous passage are teaching what shouldn't be taught. They're dividing households. They're turning households upside down with their lies and with their deceit. Oh, they're being deceiving. They're lying. That's not integrity. It's not dignity. And so Paul says, Titus, you teach with integrity. You speak with dignity. You urge young men to live these godly lives, to be self-controlled, to, and have a soundness of speech that can't be condemned so that no one can come along and say to you, well, but you're teaching untruth. You're, you're, what you're teaching is unbiblical. What you're teaching is, is a lie. What you're teaching is deceiving. Titus is urged to live a life of truth and to teach truth so that even the opponents can be silenced. So that even the opponents have nothing to say. They, they can't, there's, there's nothing they can throw at him that will stick. And then the last group addresses servants, bond servants, slaves. Now, the first thing you need to know is, is slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world was not exactly the same thing that we have. It was, it was a much broader term than, than uh, chattel slavery in the United States. And this is not a defense of slavery in any way, shape, or form. And it has as much to do with anyone who works for someone else. I mean, the, the same is true, not just for, well, I'm not a slave, but I have a boss. I have an employee. I have, one, I have someone over me who expects me to work and labor for them. The bondservant's primary responsibility is for the good of those that he works for. Are you seeking the good of your boss? Are you seeking the good of, of your employer? Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing and, and not argumentative not pilfering. They're not talking back and arguing and trying to tell their boss how they're doing everything wrong and how they could do it so much better. And they're not stealing from work, whether it's paper or pens or money or time. If you're sitting there playing video games at work, you're stealing from your employer. Don't argue back. Don't pilfer. Don't steal. And notice... The way a slave responds to his master, the way bond servants respond to their masters, has gospel consequences. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Notice, too, that as Paul writes this to Titus to teach bond servants how they're to live, 
these slaves are members of the same church as their masters. In other words, they're on equal footing in the church. And he says, how you respond to your master, how you treat your master, showing all good faith, will actually have gospel consequences for those who watch. Let me make a couple of applications of this passage. Uh, First, there's an implied application, maybe more of an implication uh, in this passage, and that is we need each other. You can't read this passage and see this as people living in isolation from other believers. We need the church. Young women need older women. It's, it's perfectly clear there, at least in that context, that older women are to be teaching younger women. These, these expectations for life in the family can only be observed, evaluated, modeled, and practiced in public. This is further evidence that we need the church. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. We can't live the Christian life alone on a deserted island somewhere, isolated from the rest of God's people. A second application. Um, The fact that these things need to be taught tells you something. They are not natural. The natural man isn't like this. The sinful man left in his sin unredeemed is not like this. The fact that these need to be taught tells you that this doesn't come natural to you. This isn't part of of the natural man. The unbeliever has no interest in these things. He cares more about himself. He has no interest in being self-controlled because what he wants is for his appetites and passions to run wild because it makes him feel good as he worships himself through that. The unbeliever needs Jesus, not self-help. To tell an unbeliever, stop doing this or stop doing that or start doing that, that may be true, but that is not his greatest need. His greatest need is a new heart. He needs Christ. A third application. Um, study sound doctrine. If you're going to live a life, you're going to live what accords with sound doctrine, you probably should study sound doctrine, not just to an end in and of itself, not just to say, well, I know question 62 of the Shorter Catechism. But make every effort on your part to make sure that your system of belief is sound, it's hygienic, it's healthy, it's fit, it's put together properly. That it's not missing parts. It doesn't have diseased parts. Fourth application. I want you to notice Paul's greater concern in this passage. I didn't mention it at all. Well, I hinted at it. I looked down the road uh, when we looked at bond servants. He's not just interested in teaching these various groups how to live. 
Notice verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled. Look at verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Look at verse 10. That may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul's great concern is that our lives have actual evangelistic effects. The way we act, the way we treat each other, the way we interact with each other actually has has evangelistic uh, effects and consequences. Our community life, our family life actually bears witness to the gospel of Christ. I know you know people. I know people who profess faith in Christ, but whose lives are such that you'd wish they would just shut their mouth. They don't live in accordance with God's will. And you're thinking to yourself, I would rather you not call attention to your apparent supposed faith in Christ. Because you're so dragging the name of Christ through the mud for people out there that you're making real true evangelism difficult at least. Paul wants our lives to winsomely attract others to the gospel of Christ. A fifth application. One of our membership vows, uh, most of you here have have taken these vows. I think all of you have heard them uh, at least once, maybe Tens, ten times, who knows. Uh, one of our membership vows is uh, that we will, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. To live in a way that's fitting and appropriate for Christians to live. Well, here's a passage that shows us what is fitting, what that looks like. You can't muster the gumption to do these things on your own. Did you notice the membership vow? That you will, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, you need, we need daily to beg the Holy Spirit to work these things in us. We don't have them on our own. We have them only by His grace and His work in our lives. And one last application as we prepare to come to the table. These qualifications, these characteristics are given to believers. In other words, they're written to people who are believers, who are converted, not those who are yet unconverted. Uh, this is how you expect someone who has been redeemed to now live in light of that redemption by the grace, work, and power of the Holy Spirit. In a second, we're going to sing uh, a hymn, All for Jesus, the last verse. Oh, what wonder, how amazing, Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns, a great word, deigns to call me His beloved. 
lets me rest beneath his wings. I want you to make this connection. It would be really easy to read this list and think to yourself, I can't do that. Or, worse, that just, that's just mean. That's awfully demanding. But this list should also remind you of your salvation by grace alone. Because if this is the instruction to believers, that means that Jesus loved you when you weren't these things. Jesus loved you, older men, when you weren't self-controlled, sober-minded. Jesus loved you, younger men, when you lacked self-control. Jesus loved you, older women, when you were a gossip and a slanderer. Younger women, when you were not interested in submitting to your husband or loving your family or whatever else is on that list. In other words, in many ways, this passage should encourage you. Because the only reason this is given to us as believers is because Christ loved us when we weren't those things. And as we come to the table, we'll be reminded all over again of our unworthiness for His life, death, burial, and resurrection. All which He did so that we might become these things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for unworthy people, unlovable people, certainly unloving people, people who were selfish, who were only interested in their own good, their own pleasure, uh, their own interests, their own preservation, and certainly not interested in the, the cares of others. But Father, You have redeemed us because of Christ. And we pray that You would use the means of grace, Your Word, this sacrament, prayer, fellowship with other believers, to encourage this growth, this maturity in us. So that the name of Christ might be honored and glorified. So that those outside might look at us and say, I want that. They have what we don't have. They have what this world needs. And that we might very quickly go, we have it by grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.